Hello, and welcome to the MPM Interconnections podcast. I'm Andrew Burns, your host for this week's episode. And I'm joined today by Michael Rucker, founder and CEO of Scout Clean Energy. Michael, welcome to the podcast, sir. Andrew, very nice to be with you. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to have you here, and it's it's great to, to talk to you again. And, and there are so many different topics that I'd like to get your insight on, as both as it relates to Scout Clean Energy and just the wider industry. Um, but to start things off, um, I did want to uh, take a look back at the at around the turn of the year when you guys were acquired by by Brookfield. Um, I you know what we're about about two thirds of a year now since that acquisition. So I'm just curious. You know, what have been the impacts to, to Scout Clean Energy so far? Um, you know, back at ACP, we kind of talked about how you were able to sort of focus on on your strengths in the industry and, and kind of not really go into some some other areas that maybe you weren't as interested in. But, you know, on the high level, what, what has been your reaction to that? And what do you think uh, the impacts have been? Well, that was a really exciting uh, time for us at the end of last year when that transaction closed with Brookfield. And we were able to get a new high quality sponsor behind Scout. Um you know, then we had to get to the harder work of actually integrating and, and, and making that new relationship work. And right. that's what we've been doing for the last uh, two thirds of the year. Um, but it's going really well. And some of the most exciting aspects of that are uh, first, just the, the theory for how um, the Brookfield organization um, is distributed and organized. We're an independent portfolio company within the Brookfield Global Transition Fund. So that suits us really well because we were always from the beginning building the company up as a like a full spectrum developer owner operator mm -hmm. independent power producer. So uh, you know we had staffed up and actually created uh, infrastructure departments, got good people in to basically manage projects from concept all the way through to operations. And I'm, I'm really excited that in the uh, Brookfield structure, there's room for us to continue to do that as opposed to being integrated into a very large company. Sure. Even though, you know, Brookfield's a, a class A operator, um, we get to benefit a lot from that experience. Um, those people, um, you know, those tools that they use, the processes that support it, but we still get to maintain our independence. And maybe most importantly, is um, in a market where capital is increasingly constrained, right. a world of higher interest rates, uh, you know, equity values in a lot of competing companies, for example, developers are, tend to be lower these days. Um, you know, it's just, it's harder to raise capital uh, at the scale that we need to make a business like this work. So having Brookfield behind us really maybe is the key that unlocks, um, you know, the door to allow us access to tax equity in particular but also construction financing, um, you know, corporate revolvers, you know, development financing tools, equipment financing. All of this is much more accessible to us for us as being part of the Brookfield family. So I'm excited about that too. Yeah. Have you kind of felt that relief a little bit over the last year, you know, since this acquisition? I know it's kind of been, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. Like you mentioned, you know, prices are, are kind of spiking and, and um, there's, there's definitely a lot of uh, angst in the in some areas of the market right now. Yeah, so you you get you you feel like you guys have kind of felt a little bit of that relief from that. Yeah, definitely for us, um, a lot of relief. I mean, but those are challenges that are going to affect the whole industry, and us included. Uh, we're just relatively in a good place to really kind of weather that storm. Um, I think access to tax equity. I'm talking more about the traditional partnership flip structures, yeah. which are very efficient for us to use. Um, you know, we, we should have, um, you know, good access to that market going forward. 
And that would have been a, a big challenge for the company given our size is kind of a mid-size, uh, you know, very energetic and aspirational developer, but still mid-size compared to a lot of our competition. So uh, sure. having access to those markets really helped us out a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, you know, one thing that that is constraining everybody, whether you know you have access to capital or not, right now, is the interconnection, right? And um, I know that that's kind of one of the big talking points, maybe the biggest talking point in the industry right now, just based on what we've seen, you know, from the reform proposals of the last couple of weeks. We saw first MISO, and then uh, FERC, you know, obviously, which a lot of eyes were on were on both of those. Um, so just you know, on a high level, you know, somebody that that's active, obviously in MISO, and then obviously, um, you know, anywhere that FERC is is active. Uh, what are your reactions to these proposals, and what do you, what do you think? You know, just early on, early early take here, but what what do you think the impacts might be to your pipeline uh, based on what you're seeing from from both of these? Well, firstly, I think you got it right on the nose that that's the biggest challenge really facing our corner of the industry, our interconnection queues right now. Right. In terms of meeting the aspirational goals that we have to meet uh, decarbonization in the economy at the scale that we're looking at, the scale that the Biden administration at least is committed to, that just isn't going to happen unless we can get projects deployed and they have to get through the queues to do that. So, uh, you know, we're seeing queue delays of years in mm -hmm. most markets that we work on. They just seem to be lengthening and lengthening and the uh, probability of projects getting through it continues to drop and drop. So, you know, I'm glad there's a lot of focus on it. It was kind of the one big issue that was left undone, really, in the IRA and the infrastructure bill. So uh, there's still a lot of work to be done there. So I really do welcome the proposals from PJM um, and MISO to reform their queues and also the FERC order that just came out. I'm still digesting it. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's a lot to learn there. So I, I do appreciate the focus and the efforts on it, but I have to say, just from my experience working in the industry over two decades, I'm pretty skeptical still. Yeah. We, we've seen multiple waves of Q reform over the years, and uh, we just haven't seen that silver bullet yet. Let's sure. really solve some of the big problems. And, you know, from the recent proposals, I do like conceptually the idea of, you know, uh, first ready, first served. Yeah. That's good. Um, having to put up more um, security to move a project forward is something we're not afraid of now that, of course, we're better financed right. than we ever were. Sure. Um, and in a way, that gives us a competitive advantage. And we know our projects well. We know what we should support and what we shouldn't. But, you know, some of the big issues around um, queue timelines, I mean, I appreciate the FERC proposal to create um, uh, some penalties for the ISOs for not moving projects along. I don't know the scale of those yet. Maybe it's yeah. buried, buried in the order somewhere. Um, you know, that could be helpful, but, um, you know, big issues around cost allocation mm -hmm. haven't really been addressed right? as far as I've seen. And also the seams issues for planning between um, RTO ISO regions mm -hmm. really kind of remain open as well. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical just because I haven't seen these efforts really make significant progress in the past. And um you know, it's probably an iterative process. We just have to keep focusing on and keep improving over time. Right, right. The iteration makes sense. It's just kind of, you know, I can see it being frustrating. Why, like, like you said, like you're, you know, you've seen proposals before, and it's like, you know, we're everybody's still kind of. It doesn't seem like the the problems are really getting much better, right? Um, in terms of of uh, your pipeline, uh, just remind me and, and the listeners here, like, uh, are you spread pretty evenly between, like, say, MISO and PJM, which I guess are kind of the two big swaths, right, of uh, of the 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 middle of the country, anyway, and the, and the East Coast? Are you guys fairly uh, even between those, or do you kind of favor one over the other in terms of your pipeline? 
Yeah, you know, that's been an aspect of our business plan from the very beginning, even before our first investors came on. Uh, we were diversified by ISO region because just over the years, you've seen markets, some move while some are languishing, some solve problems like interconnection while others, you know, go back to the drawing boards and delay things. So uh, we've never thought it was good to be over-concentrated in one market. Um, I mean, it's very easy to do that in ERCOT where it's relatively easy yeah. to develop faster to get through the queues and a lot of electricity demand. Mm -hmm. That, you know, ERCOT has its own challenges. Maybe we wouldn't get into it. That would be a different podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, you know, we, from the very beginning, had projects in the WAC and PJM and MISO um, and SPP to kind of diversify our provision and Cal ISO as well, actually. Sure. So, you know, we've maintained that strategy and we've tried to grow them relatively at the same pace. Uh, we're relatively high in uh, PJM, most of which, of course, is kind of stuck in the Q reform process. Yeah. Right now. Sure. And, uh, and WECC, where, you know, the progress in WECC markets is spotty because the market itself is so fragmented. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's 120 odd BAs and uh, each one has their own queue process and their own market issues. So, you know, some move faster than others, but uh, WEC has been a big focus and will continue to be. That's where our core 7, 1200 megawatt, it's 1100 megawatts actually when solar storage hybrid is, for example. So a big right. focus for us. Okay, cool, cool. Well, yeah, I was asking just because uh, for me, like uh, for my, you know, the way that NPM kind of kind of works is we we usually kind of split duties based on geography. And so over the last say year and a half, couple of years, like my focus has really been obviously ERCOT, which is where I'm from, and then uh, MISO as well. So I was I really dove headfirst into the the MISO proposals, and there's a couple of things in there that I that I want to get your take on. But uh, first of all, just since you mentioned ERCOT, I, I hadn't planned on going too too deep into ERCOT uh, this time, just because, like you said, it, it almost is a whole other podcast. But uh, well, last time we talked, you know, we were there was still all those proposals still kind of working their way through the legislation, right? Like it was like at the tail end of that. And, and obviously there was a lot of concern um, regarding some of those, uh, you know, SBs in particular, but um, you know, now that the dust has settled, it seems like the the damage was, was pretty minimal. Um, what do you, what do you, what were your kind of high level takes on off of that whole experience? Are you still, you know, fairly bullish on uh, ERCOT or did, did, you know, some of the discussions earlier this year give you pause? Yeah, there've been a number of, uh, events over the years in ERCOT that have given us pause and yeah. uh you know the Yuri storm would be the big one sure uh definitely and then coming around and seeing this uh these legislative proposals that target renewable energy discriminatively uh weren't very welcome either and in fact uh you I don't know because really if it's we need to go through it if it's even relevant right now but you know some of those would have been really shut down development of renewables in the state if they right. passed so uh, sure, it didn't get put into place, but you know, could could that come around again in the next uh, legislative session, potentially? So sure. it kind of um, highlights that that risk exists and may be perennial in that market. So it it does lead you to pause, but you know, you kind of have to be in ERCOT to some extent in yeah. this business, and most of our operating assets are in ERCOT currently. So uh, you know. We're not leaving the market. We're just very selective about what we do there. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame about the the legislative hangups because you know other than that, it seems like it's it's pretty great compared to some of these others, right? Like you don't quite have the interconnection backlogs that you do um, in some of these other areas, and uh, obviously there's ample land for for development still, even after all these years. So, um, and I will say right now, just as a just obviously just as a resident, um, there's there is a lot of coverage going on right now about how solar is kind of you know keeping us above water with. Uh, yeah. 
um, all the demand right now. It's obviously very hot here right now. So, um, you know, you know, it, it, the, the good thing about the, the legislature too, is like, you know, the sessions are really only every other year. So it does kind of minimize the damage that can be done a little bit. Um, but then also just, you know, things can change. Right. And so we'll see kind of what the attitudes are in you know, a year and a half from now. And, and it'll be interesting to, to kind of track. Um, but I guess I, I, hope, I, go I, ahead. I hope I, I hope we can project that and yeah. uh, get the general populace to focus on it because when it gets down to it, the Yuri storm, um, although wind energy, uh, you know, was struck by icing events during the storm, it came back very quickly. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, really, there were a lot of issues with the conventional power grid and natural gas oh, yeah. from from production distribution all the way through the generators themselves, and you know, you're seeing it now where solar some thirteen odd. 13 gigawatts or so, I think, have come on in uh, ERCOT, which is really impressive growth. But yeah. right now, it's keeping the lights on. And, yeah. you know, from a power marketing perspective, a lot of the variability in those spikes that you see yes. in those on peak hours have been flattened. Yeah. Which yeah. is exactly what you want to see. Right. Power. Exactly. Yeah. Like we've been, um, th- I think this week actually has been the hottest so far this summer. Now, I will say, like, uh, you know, I think generally across the country, this has been a worse summer, you know, for, for most. And I will say for Texas, we had 47, 100 degree days last year, which like normal is like 20. Um, and we're at about 27 ish right now. So um, it's not quite as bad. I think it just started earlier last last year. So we're hopefully hoping that it doesn't progress longer this this time. But um, certainly it's uh, comparable to last year at the very least. And so um, but but the difference is we have more renewables online than we did last year. So we haven't had like last year we had calls where it was like, hey, you guys, you know, we got to conserve. Right. Where this time it, it it really hasn't been too much of a problem, like you said, with the the you know the flat demand curve. So, um, and I think solar, at last I saw, was making up about twenty five percent of the grid right now, which you know is pretty impressive given the given the kind of legislative uh, layup there. So anyway, that that's kind of interesting ERCOT discussion. But uh, I do I do want to shift gears a little bit to to MISO just because I was really diving into um, some of what was in those uh, interconnection proposals. And one thing in particular kind of overlapped with something that we talked about last time at ACP, which is where you guys were kind of interested in acquiring those early to mid-stage projects and particularly in congested areas. And um, I know that one thing that's kind of interesting about MISO's proposal is that it's actually going to prohibit sales, uh, project sales, until they reach phase two of the the MISO process, which... You know, I, I based on my understanding, it can take up to, to two years or longer, which, you know, and I'm sure they're trying to get that down. But um, just curious in terms of uh, your acquisition strategy, do you do you see that, you know, having some impact on on you guys acquiring projects in, in MISO? Do you think that, you know, things might slow down there as if, you know, obviously assuming that this is implemented? Yeah, you know, I don't thoroughly understand the rationale for that provision. Yeah. In the key reform, to tell you the truth. And, Generally, you would want projects to find uh, the most qualified, motivated, and uh, strongest financially backed sponsor right. uh, that they need to, to get through the queues. So why would you limit that? I, I don't know exactly what you're achieving. Um, what it could mean for us, um, I, I don't think it'll change our perspective in terms of acquisitions. We just may need to wait longer before yeah. we can invest in a project. Now, maybe that uh, in some cases where the original developer is capital constrained or lost faith in the market or is concentrating on something else and needs to exit, it, it could lead to projects, maybe good projects, potentially dropping out of the queue unnecessarily. Right. Yeah. Well, that's definitely, I think, probably the biggest concern, right, in, in MISO and really any of these queues is just, 
for companies that are cost constrained, like you, you might not just have the ability, right? You might not have the the balance sheet to last long enough, you know, to make it through all the way the you know what four or five year process that it takes at this point. And and there were some there were some interesting things in the MISO proposal that I think are geared toward that. Obviously, it's very vague, um, but like the idea of obviously they're they're ramping up the um the penalties for withdrawing projects right because they're trying to cut down on projects that aren't going to actually make it through the queue and so their idea is to take some of the some of those penalties and put them toward projects that are actually going to make it through the queue to try to cut down on costs so it'll be interesting to see if if you know if that actually is is implemented in a meaningful way um but that was that was something that that stuck out what do you what are your thoughts on that you think that's something that could actually you know be helpful well, you know, those concepts have existed to some extent in the past, too, where if you've put up security for shared network upgrades and you drop out, basically you have to, you know, maintain that commitment in order to fund the upgrades that others were expecting. So that's not a, exactly, a, it's an evolution of an existing concept. So I think we can kind of get our heads around that. So, um, you know, I'm not overly concerned about it. What, what, what kind of pains me and it's not only MISO, it's it's, it's other uh, ISOs, is a lot of times we're forced to make those decisions in terms of whether we're going to go forward with the project post more security or, or put security at risk yeah, without having any better information than we had previously. Or right. we have information that comes through an earlier stage of the process, which, uh, you know, you just know is egregiously incorrect, mm-hmm. um, usually up to the negative. So that you'll have a massive upgrade Right. That you know that if you can stick through the queue, if you have a good project, and we've always done our diligence and our background and independent studies on it, um, you know, we think those would go away or, you know, could be argued away ultimately, but we're still forced to um, kind of ante up before we see the next card. Right. right. <laughs> I really, I, I, I don't appreciate that. It doesn't look like that's been solved. Right. Yeah. And I think another issue, or at least particularly in MISO, is like you have no idea about affected system upgrades, right? Which are a growing problem. Like you just, yeah, you're way deep and like super deep in before you, you know, hear anything back on that. And I mean, you know, you have no idea how big that, you know, could be, right? No, that's a really good point. Um, and we're going through that right now with more than one project. Uh, yeah. And it always, that comes at, at such a late stage that not only are you beyond fully committed, you might be even in construction. Yeah, time. right. That's all. So yeah, that 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 system doesn't work terribly well. And that is that is kind of part of the larger issue of not very good cooperation at the seams between the different ISOs. Right. Which I think is an argument to have a large RTO in the West. Totally. So we have a less fragmented market in the end because we have an opportunity to do that in the next few years if um, we focus on that. Right. Yeah, that is that is a big difference. You're right. Like where the East Coast, everything is, is you know, fairly uniform. You get, it kind of gets, you know, a little weird when you get into New York ISO and stuff. But, uh, you know, other than that, I mean, it's pretty uniform. Whereas in the West, you know, it's just chaos over there. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, I guess the other big thing in in uh, MISO was, I think maybe the thought process, you know, I, I can't speak for MISO, obviously, but I think the, the thought process behind the the limiting the trades or the, the sales until later in the process is they're trying to, they're really trying to bring down how big each cluster is. Right. So like, well, I think 2022 is like 171 gigawatts. Right. Whereas like, uh, MISO's in total capacity is only like 120. So I think they wanted to cut it down to like 60% of their total capacity. So that would be like 70, a 70 gigawatt size, right? So obviously a huge decrease. And then to offset that, they are going to want to implement limits on 
individual developers, right? And I think that individual developer limit is the is the crux of this this trade this sale thing. You know, trying to delay the sales because you know, like a, a well backed, very uh, rich developer could go in and like buy a bunch of projects from others and then have a much bigger slice of the queue, I guess, I think is, is their thought process. But mm-hmm. um, that is the, uh, it, it's going to be interesting. Obviously, none of that is final. They're still kind of going through that process and they're going to issue a final version, uh, I think at the end of maybe next month. But um, that'll be something that we're that we're keeping our eyes on for sure. Um, in terms of uh, interconnection as well, um, this is kind of an interesting thing that we're seeing pop up, uh, particularly for me and MISO, but I imagine in PGM as well, uh, as we're seeing utilities trying to avoid these, just try to avoid altogether these interconnection queues and and you know, the costs and timelines. And so we're seeing some interesting approaches and I wanted to see if this is something that you're seeing as well. So um, definitely seeing a lot more interest from self-builds, right, from utilities. Um, and then for those that are contracting or doing, you know, an acquisition, something like that, um, they'll require that uh, the bids be for projects that interconnect directly with their their existing transmission infrastructure rather than, you know, just the larger grid. So I was curious if this was something that you guys are are seeing and if you expect any impact for, you know, kind of your relationships with uh, utility off-takers with, you know, these trends going on right now. Yeah, you know, that's kind of a return to um, how we used to do this decades ago where uh, we didn't have a very well-developed network of ISO, RTOs. So you were kind of working within individual utility service territories sure. and you kind of targeted projects to those specific market, each one kind of defined a, a separate market. ISOs gave us the ability to look over a much larger geographical area with, um, you know, more diverse uh, range of off-takers, but um, that's not a concept that's, you know, un- un- unheard of for us and one we could adapt to relatively easily. What it typically means though, is we end up supporting a more distributed uh, development portfolio because we end up targeting projects for a single utility that really don't have necessarily much of a market beyond that single utility. Right. And that kind of concentrates risk and force, forces you to kind of maintain a, a, a broader distribution of projects that's expensive to maintain over time. Sure. So we do prefer the ISOs for that reason. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, we're here to meet the needs of the market. And if utilities want to have projects that are connecting with their transmission network, we're going to develop projects that do that. Sure. Do you think that that could uh, result in maybe not quite as large projects as well? Like I think in in certain areas, particularly Texas, obviously, like there's kind of this trend to make projects bigger and bigger. And um, and, that, and that makes sense also from a transmission perspective, just, you know, you're not having to, to bog yourself down in as many areas. But for, for these utilities you know, they may not have the the capacity, right? If you're just developing for one specific utility to for these large projects. Do you, so do you think that might have an impact on like project size? Yeah, no, I think so. It, it starts to really uh, be focused on the IRP, on the demands of a single uh, company. Mm-hmm. No doubt, yeah. So yeah. I think you will. I mean, some utilities have pretty big appetites in terms of um, what they can purchase, but others are looking for much smaller scales. So right. no, yeah. I think you're completely right. This depends on the utility. Um, so talk, talk a little bit about, about Scott's, pipe, uh, Scott's Pipeline uh, specifically. Um, and this is something that we, we talked a little bit about at ACP, but you guys have always had kind of a, a strong history as like a wind developer. Um, and But we've talked about how the, you know, you guys are 
transitioning to where solar is is really kind of becoming an equal part of your pipeline. So do you want to talk about the thought process and the legwork behind that? I know that obviously solar is kind of a crowded space. So just just talk a little bit about, uh, you know, that transition and, and building up your solar pipeline. Yeah, we, we definitely love wind projects and it's in our DNA. That, that really is where the foundations of the company were for me personally. So mm-hmm. I always love to work on a wind project and um, wind projects will continue to be a very important part of the renewable energy mix. Um, and in fact, uh, when it gets down to it, um, you know, the consumers, the buyers are looking for uh, renewables 24 hours now a day. Right. So um, around the clock renewables. And you just can't really do that without uh, a balanced uh, technology portfolio, right? You, you, you can't do it with wind only, you can't do it with solar only, and you need storage to fill in the gaps between the two right. in terms of getting as close as you can to that around the clock product. And you know, ultimately, if that's what the customers want, that's what we need to offer, right? So in a way, we, we need to be in those markets, those different technologies, solar principally, and also storage in order to meet the needs of the market. And from a development perspective too, just in terms of turnover of projects, getting stuff done, um, solar just inherently moves faster. Right. A lot of the development challenges you have with wind, just there, there aren't parallels in solar. They're different challenges, most of them driven by supply chain, certainly. Yes. But, uh, you know, you can't really ignore the solar market and expect to um, have a broad footprint in renewable energy development in the U.S. And for us, too, to make the transition, um, a lot of the uh, skill sets we have in our development team, our engineering teams, our construction teams are very similar among for both technologies, particularly in the early stage when it comes to development, working on real estate, transmission, permitting issues and so on. So it's very easy for those teams for those teams to work in different technologies. Uh, when it comes to engineering and procurement, you're definitely seeing divergence. Yeah. So so for us, our challenge has been just to build in those skill sets within our team so that we can we can cover the life cycle of project all the way to operation. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And and like you meant you touched on it a little bit already there, but you know. Broadly speaking, it seems like solar supply has been a lot more constrained than than wind supply. So, uh, how have you guys been been working through those challenges? I mean, obviously, it's it's been kind of a rush for for solar supply over the last couple of years, really. At this point, probably even longer. So, you know, I mean, it, I'm sure it, the Brookfield backing helps, right? But uh, what has been kind of your uh, your experience there? Well, we've been suffering through it just like the rest of the industry. Our experience is no better, yeah, no worse probably than than everyone else in the solar space. We're we're kind of happy that we can turn around and focus a little bit more on wind. Sure. When solar gets completely stuck, and you know, there'll probably come a time when we can do the same in the other direction. But um, we were lucky to get uh, uh, an order in for our immediate needs uh, a year and a half ago with for solar. Right. Um, and that also creates some domestic content advantages for us. So we didn't even see at the time. Yeah, sure. Um, so so that's good. But we're definitely seeing uh, challenges through 2026, at least. And um, we're going to be looking very hard to try to find options to build that out, preferably with domestic content panels if we can. Right. Um, in the near term. And like you said, this is one of the areas where being part of the broader Brookfield family is a really great value because yeah. if you look at the consolidated demand and Brookfield footprint, it's it's very significant. And you know, I think solar manufacturers are going to see that and, and try to get in there to uh, you know fulfill those needs. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And and I know that that, you know, obviously, as you say, you know, you want to ramp up as much as you can domestic supply. And I know that these manufacturers are doing their best, right? Like, especially post IRA, like there's, there's definitely a, a significant ramp up of, of domestic uh, manufacturing going on. Right. Um, or at least like there's, we, there's, we're going, it's going to happen, right. <laughs> as they build those, those plants. But um, one thing that I'm kind of looking at is I, I remember a year ago when the, the solar before the the moratorium like the solar tariff import uh situation was like a real challenge for a lot of people and um i was talking to somebody that is kind of involved in policy discussions uh you know a month or two ago and he was like yeah i don't see those uh extending like he 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 saw those those tariffs expiring um you know when they're supposed to you know less than a year from now so I was curious, like, you know, are you guys kind of taking a look at that? I, I think the I, I know that the 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 wish and the hope is that, the, you know, domestic supply is going to replace those imports. But it's this, you know, I, I have a hard time believing that that's going to be ready in time before those, you know, those bottlenecks really strike back. Right. Yeah. No, you know, I agree with you. I think the ultimate solution is just getting that supply chain to move to the United States. And it seems to be doing so in terms of um, the announcements. But just like you said, there's going to be a lag and probably a gap still that we need to solve. You know, when it comes to the tariff, I'm not going to prognosticate on what our government's going to do yeah. um, collectively between the executive branch and the legislature uh, in regards to the tariffs or even the Department of Commerce, I guess, part of the administration. You know, but if you look historically, um, you know, the tariffs that existed broadly in the economy in the last administration are largely unchanged in this one. Yeah. So... Right now, I would say status quo is more likely than anything else, just based on past action. Yeah. yeah. But we'll see. Maybe those who know uh, know Washington better than me have a better answer for which way things will fall in the next year. But my expectation is just until the U.S. domestic supply chain is really starting to you know, build out and get channels out the door, it's, it's going to be rocky. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably uh, correct, but it'll be something to to keep an eye on for sure as we go into next year. Um, now, uh, you know, I do want to start to to wind down now, but there are a couple other main things that that I want to touch on. And one of them, I guess, like the big one of the, the biggest things still that we haven't really discussed is it's a lot of discussion about solar and wind. Um, but I'm curious if there are other areas that you guys are are starting to either look at or, or ramp up. I know that you guys obviously have. Uh, storage hybrid projects or co-located storage projects. And that, that, you know, I want to hear about that. And if that's something that you guys are ramping up, but also, you know, is there anything other more exotic that you guys are looking at? I know green hydrogen is getting thrown around a lot more recently. So, you know, curious if you guys are, are kind of taking a look at that as well. Yeah. No, we have a storage program and what we call the power Two X program um, in storage. It's uh, more or less hybrid projects. So uh, solar storage, Hybrids are obviously very common, um, but now you know we're seeing more uh, storage paired with wind, just because the uh, ITC that was offered to storage independently right. from solar effectively in the IRA. So that's opens up some doors for us to actually layer in some storage options with some of our wind projects, particularly one in California that we're hoping to bring to um, construction at the end of the year or early next. So. Uh, you know, that's kind of core part of it. Those are more core technologies. But, you know, the more exotic, really, um, in our Power2X program, we've been working on on-site data centers. Now, there's yeah. been a lull in that with uh, the uh, gyrations in the, um, uh, uh, you know, the cryptocurrency markets. Yeah, so totally. Those seem, those seem to be coming back to some extent. Um, 
So those options might continue to develop. We're, we're thinking that um, we might see uh, more activity in, in on-site data centers relatively soon. Now, our overall business is driven very significantly by data centers, but those are mostly the cloud server right. large companies that are looking for power to do their own procurement, not necessarily on-site. But we do have a, a green hydrogen program. So, okay. Uh, you know, it's always associated with a renewable generation facility, and we're primarily looking at providing, you know, the green electrons to make hydrogen products green, more or less. Right. right. Uh, we're not really planning to get into um, hydrogen um, production sure. or distribution and marketing. But, you know, I think the way the IRA kind of parses things out and also the way the technologies and just the physical infrastructure works is I could see down the road that we might be willing to operate electrolyzers and produce hydrogen as a product uh, with our green electrons. I just don't think we're going to take it beyond what comes out of the electrolyzer. And I, I think our preference is really just to continue what we do well, which is build renewable energy facilities. Right. Have you, are you seeing just with that through that green hydrogen program? Are you seeing um, like where where where's the like demand at with that? Where's the interest level? It's are you seeing like uh, sustained growth in and hydrogen development that you guys are able to partner with, uh, or is it you know still kind of focused in specific areas and it's still kind of viewed as sort of niche? Yeah, it seems to be uh, developing on a regional basis, and there are drivers in each market that make that happen. Um, you know, the low carbon credits in California, for example, have been a big driver in that market. Um, you know, we have uh, projects in the Midwest that are really targeting sustainable aviation fuels. Okay. That seems to be a, a, a driver for us. Also green methanol in some cases, uh, you know, using ammonia also as a uh, transfer medium to effectively move right. hydrogen, but in a liquid form. So, uh, you know, it really depends on the market, but, uh, so it's a little spotty in terms of where we're seeing um, specific opportunities. But, you know, we're also following the hydrogen hubs, particularly the one in yeah. the Pacific Northwest where we have a huge footprint. So I think over time, those might uh, help create markets. And it seems to be that downstream market that's the limiter right now. The IRA creates huge opportunities in terms of, um, you know, providing a great foundation for the delivered hydrogen price for renewable energy. Certainly, a very significant support. Definitely, but you know, until we see broad demand for hydrogen in the economy develop, it's, it's going to take a while for that right. to happen, and that's going to nothing's going to happen any faster than the demand. Sure. Yeah. 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 Well, it's it's something that that you know I think that there's there's interest in, and it's something that people are sort of curious about, right? So it's it's always worth uh, sort of checking in on on that on that kind of stuff. That's something that maybe we'll look as as we move ahead. But as we uh, sort of wind down here, I, I did I did want to talk about um, just kind of things that we can expect from Scout specifically over, say, the next 12, 18 months. Um, back at ACP, we talked a little bit about your late stage portfolio that you were looking to work through. Um, I think you were you were looking at about 1600 megawatts there. So I was curious. I mean, it's, you know, it's been a few months, so I imagine things probably haven't changed too drastically. But is that kind of still the 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 track that you guys are, are on with those yeah. late stage projects? Yeah, that, that's still uh, the track that we're on. Um, we're focusing a lot um, first on integration with our new investors and owner, sure. at Brookfield. That's important for us. We're making great progress there. So that enables us then to um, have all the tools we need to really turn around and, and focus on execution. And we have we have two projects in construction right now, one, one project that's more than halfway through. Um, we're looking to get you know roughly three more of those committed by the end of 2024. 
Okay. And, um, you know, hopefully you can bring more on if we get, uh, you know, a good convergence of um, market opportunities for them and don't get too uh, stuck in the queues. Ultimately. Right. Well, that's yeah. always the big question mark, right? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. cool. Well, I guess I guess beyond that, though, beyond the uh, you know the that target and and you guys working through that that sixteen hundred megawatts, as you kind of look ahead and, and taking into consideration all the things that we've kind of discussed today, um, and obviously the still on the heels of your acquisition, what are what are your goals just uh, for you personally and for the for the firm um, now that from say from now until the end of twenty twenty four? Yeah, it's really execute on those project opportunities that come out of our native portfolio that we've been working on for years, even before our recent investors came on board. And, uh, you know, I think it's that growth opportunity that they specifically were looking for when they came on the scout. We also had a pretty significant um, portfolio of existing and advanced queue interconnections Sure, that I think creates a lot of value and an ability for us to kind of keep plugging away, even while some of these bigger trends, negative trends in the industry we were talking about sort themselves out. So a lot of it is execution, uh, getting new processes and tools in place to support working at a larger scale uh, to deploy a lot more capital. So those are really company goals for us. But you know, also we're pretty active in the markets. We're looking to acquire, just like we talked about yeah. back at ACP, we're looking for acquisitions pretty aggressively. And we have a team um, that's been really successful over the last uh three, four years, um, they're growing and looking to do more. So we plan to be really active in those markets, want to get the word out that we're always looking for a good project opportunity. Um, um, so in a way, uh, now that we're coupled with Brookfield, we want to kind of also focus a little bit on our brand and yeah. you know, name recognition in our industry. Uh, right so when you're, think when you're thinking about either buying, buying energy or um, selling a project, I hope we come to mind. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. And like, you know, kind of like what we talked about at ACP, I'm sure that, uh, you know, there's no shortage of projects to floating around. Right. So I'm sure that you guys have plenty of, uh, of opportunities for acquisition there. So, um, but yeah, I, I, Michael, I really appreciate you, you taking the time today. It's been an honor to have you, uh, on the podcast and, uh, let's stay in touch because a lot of these, uh, interesting topics are, are going to still be interesting a year from now. Right. <laughs> oh, definitely. Thank you, Andrew. It's really great to be here. And yeah, I mean, there's always something new in this industry, so always good stuff to talk about, definitely.